how much do you spend from your paycheck in about 100 days? The Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Every day, Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects your wallet. The federal government is on pace to spend over $1 trillion per every 100 days. Are Speaker Johnson and congressional Republicans doing anything about it? Enough is enough. Whether it's happening in D.C. or down on Wall Street, it's affecting you financially. Be informed. Check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We would love to tell you that we've got a good martini today, but we don't. We also don't have any bad martinis. They're all crazy today, so buckle up for that. Jim, I guess if there's a good martini, we're only a couple weeks away from training camp starting in the NFL, and I've seen a lot of workout videos from Justin Fields for the Bears, and I'm guessing it's a good thing we're not seeing the workout videos from Zach Wilson. <laughs> Look, Jets fans have said, why can't we have a quarterback who can score? And Zach Wilson is determined to deliver. Wow. He also might throw, throw some touchdowns this year. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, could be the case. Could be the case. If you have no idea what we're talking about, that's probably a good thing, especially if you have children around. Okay, on to, on to our first crazy martini now. And it's usually the president of the United States that we're focusing on when it comes to saying the wrong thing, mangling words, just telling stories that make no sense or are outright provable lies. But uh, Jill Biden decided to get on the act yesterday, not with the lying part, just the cringeworthy pandering to the community she was speaking with in this case uh latinos but of course for the left you got to call them latinx uh down in san antonio texas and so she was trying to say the strength of our country is in its diversity and this is how it came out but we can't get those things on our own raul helped build this organization with the understanding that the diversity of this community, as distinct as the Bogodas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, (laughs) is your strength. Well, I think diversity is our strength when we're all pulling in the same direction from the ideals that this country was founded on, but that's perhaps a discussion for another time. Jim, the one that stood out to me, of course, was Bogadas. She means bodegas, or at least her speechwriter did. Bogadas? <laughs> Wasn't that Yoda's home planet, Bogada? I'm oh, sorry, Dagobah. I thought it was the capital of Colombia, but nonetheless. There we go. <laughs> nonetheless, then she goes and gives specific examples in other places, too, including breakfast tacos <laughs> in San Antonio. Uh, so a lot of cringeworthy uh pandering here. And the the odd part is it's not just the right that's hitting her. Uh, Hispanic journalists, as you noted today in the Morning Jolt, uh, you can almost hear their audible sigh as they uh, uh, get tired of uh, trying to clean up the messes that the Bidens make with all their speech writing mistakes or just their delivery mistakes. But uh, people are tired of covering for them. Greg, Jill Biden is trying to make what is almost a a generic, anodyne, non-controversial point that Americans' Latino communities are very diverse. If you talk to a Cuban-American from Miami, they may have different views on all kinds of different things than Mexican-Americans from from Texas or Puerto Ricans up in New York City or uh, Dominicans or Guatemalans or Colombians. 
yes, you should not paint them all with one broad brush. Unfortunately, Jill Biden managed to pick probably the most cliched examples possible. The bodegas, not bagadas. The blossoms, the breakfast tacos, uh, you know, I guess we should all be thankful. And they're as fast as Speedy Gonzalez from the Warner Brothers cartoons <laughs> no, or something like that. Um, but beyond that, I, I also observe I, the metaphor doesn't really work because if you go to a restaurant and you order two of the same kind of breakfast taco, you can get all kinds of different stuff in them. But basically, it's usually, you know, uh, you know, eggs, cheese, bacon, some sort of pork product, something like that, maybe a little vegetables here and there. The, the, the tacos aren't going to look all that different. So it's kind of, if you'd said, you know, the Minnesotans are all as distinct as a pile of pancakes, I think people would recognize, well, wait a second, that's probably not the best comparison because they aren't particularly diverse, what you're, what you're talking about. Pancakes are pancakes. Now, of course, by the way, I'm sure I've irritated both the Scandinavian Americans <laughs> of Minnesota and the pancake American community with that statement. But the, just being that, like, this was allegedly written by a professional speechwriter, and you'd like to think somebody would have looked at that and just said, uh, "That's there's got to be a better way to say that that really comes across as a you know cliched stereotype." Uh, in fact, that's what the National Association of Hispanic Journalists said: "We are not tacos." Greg, did you ever think you'd see that statement in a press release? <laughs> we are not tacos. I can only imagine how it felt to type that. Uh, our heritage as Latinos is shaped by various diasporas, cultures, and food traditions. Do not reduce us to stereotypes. Um, you look, no doubt this is because, you know, we're seeing more and more Latinos and Hispanics voting for Republicans. Many Democrats thought they had that those demographics locked up forever. And lo and behold, they don't like uh, these demographics don't like a floundering economy and runaway inflation and high gas prices and food prices, high uh, food prices as much as the next guy. But I think what's interesting is the reaction to it. And look, it's the first lady, um, not the president, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. There was probably a time not that long ago they would have said, uh, you know, this isn't worth making a, a fight over. The first lady's not intending to offend anyone. Look, she was, you know, born, she's, you know, in, well into her 60s. I'm sorry, 71. Uh, you know, she grew up in the 50s and 60s. She just used clumsy words. Let's not make a big deal out of this. And I get the feeling they just, they can't. They just can't do it anymore. Particularly for a woman who's married to, you know, you to go to work at a 7-Eleven, you need to have a slight Indian accent. And, you know... Um, Shylocks and, you know, are you a junkie? And if you didn't vote for me, you ain't black and all the different things that Joe Biden has done for a really long, you know, it's interesting to hear all the discussions about white privilege, because I think a lot of us on the right of center spectrum would say there's also white Democrat privilege in which prominent white Democrats, usually of an older generation, use language that is just uh, just not used anymore. Uh, I know back, you know, during the campaign trail, Biden referred to um, uh, some uh, this leader of Singapore as the wisest man in the Orient. And, you know, you just, you know, you find yourself saying, <clears throat> you know, or Orient or Oriental is a reference to a rug, not a people anymore. That, that term really has been largely retired. And just it's an indication that like these sorts of things that would get a, you know, most Republicans or right of center figures crucified. Joe Biden kind of walks around, blundering around, making these kinds of statements, and everybody kind of pretends they don't hear him. Or you know, gives a little mild tisk tisk. I think it was the, the Anti-Defamation League when he referred to those Shylocks said, please stop referring to uh, people as Shylocks. You know, like he kept using this, this archaic 
really, you know, a language that comes as across as offensive to a lot of modern ears. And the Democratic Party is supposed to be the party that is super sensitive to uh, these sorts of things. And I think the National Association of Hispanic Journalists just they couldn't take it anymore. They just like they can't they can't pretend not to notice. And so they had to call it out. And she's issued an apology. And I don't think Jill Biden, um, I don't think she has any animosity towards Latinos or Hispanics. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any deliberate effort to mock anyone. I just think that there's a certain arrogance and presumptuousness there. I think there's just a certain um, tone deafness and just a belief that she, because she's a Democrat, nothing she says could ever be offensive. And it is a little disturbing that, you know, besides not you know, like any, mispronouncing bodegas, okay, anybody can, can, you know, mispronounce a word. I'm sure there are people who keep a running tally of my pronunciations on this podcast. Um, but just the the clumsiness, the clunkiness, the, the stereotypes there, uh, it didn't jump out to anybody in the White House at an event to ingratiate Jill Biden and Joe Biden and Democrats to the Latino community. Um, it's not the biggest thing in the world. I think there's something good about the fact that Jill Biden got called out for this. And I think that there's, you know, it's an indicator um, that the, you know, the average Democrat is just getting less and less patient with the Bidens as time goes on. Yeah, I think it's the pandering uh, even more than the exact language. I mean, we're certainly not the speech police here, the politically correct uh, speech police. But, you know, when when this comes up and you mentioned a whole litany of things Joe Biden said that uh, uh, is obvious pandering. But just uh, with the Latino community, you've got the breakfast taco situation. Uh, remember when uh, Joe Biden was on the campaign trail and he whipped out his phone and, and played some sort of uh, popular Latino music there to make it sound like it was something he listened to when it's obvious that he had no idea what he was doing. And then I just heard a clip from um, Biden. I don't know how recent it was, but I just heard the clip recently where Biden was saying the reason that uh, Latinos numbers of vaccinations weren't as high as he would have liked was because they're worried about getting deported. So the idea in his mind is that, uh, you know, most of these people are here legally, which is, you know, know, there are a lot of illegal immigrants in this country. But the idea that that's the entire Latino population, uh, you know, is, is painting with such a ridiculously broad brush. And like you said it perfectly, they care about the things the rest of us care about. Inflation, prices, gas prices, you know, our standing in the world, the border, everything. Uh, and, and for some reason, they have to keep trying to pigeonhole all these different demographic groups as if they only care about certain things that are somewhat unique to their to their life. It's, it's just weird. Yeah. And one of the, you know, when I was watching you know, that and various other outreach, I kind of periodically wonder, I'd really love to know the last time either Biden interacted with someone who was Latino, not at a luncheon, not in some sort of formal political environment. But, you know, do they have any longtime Latino friends? Do they have anybody who they see outside of a political, political, you know, coalition building role? that are in their lives. I, you know, maybe it's the case, maybe, you know, I, who, who knows, but it just kind of seemed um, tone deaf. Like, like all of this is entirely theoretical to them. Like she, she, you know, a question, when was the last time uh, Jill Biden ever shopped in a bodega? <laughs> I don't know. Been a while, probably. Not that I could say I've done much better, but I do know how to say it. Um, <laughs> and I'm also not trying to pander uh, to people on issues that uh, supposedly only matter to them. So uh, on these uh, particular issues, Jim, just kind of, uh, just kind of as, as an exit here, I feel like the Bidens are taking on more and more water from their own people here. So they keep saying they're going to run again in 24, but I feel like the odds of that actually happening are getting less and less. Nothing official, of course, will be said until after the midterms, if at all. But uh, I just, I just feel like 
with his numbers continuing to crater, there's no bounce back whatsoever. They just keep heading in a negative direction for him. Uh, somebody's going to tell him not to do it, and he's probably going to listen eventually. He wants to, and she definitely wants him to, I think. But uh, for some reason, uh, I think the pressure is going to get too high. And the question is uh, whether he listens to it. But we'll find out next year, I guess. Well, you no, know, Greg, I think that's a very accurate point. That when, Jill, when Joe Biden said, if you're not voting for me, you're not black. Look, the NAACP and various other African-American groups could have given him a great deal of grief over that. I think it's you know, be more than fair to say, who the hell is Joe Biden to run around deciding who's authentically black? But they chose not to, because by and large, those groups are left of center. By and large, they support the Democrats. By, you know, the leadership of those organizations is certainly not friendly towards Donald Trump. And they were, you know, hoping Biden would win. So they're willing to hold their tongue, look at their feet, pretend they didn't see it, pretend they didn't hear it, hope the whole thing passes in a news cycle or two. I think this sort of thing and, you know, stuff like the Atlantic running a piece saying Biden shouldn't run again and the New York Times running this, you know, front page story and how devastating his poll numbers are and how many Democrats want somebody else to run. All of that stuff is basically saying, Biden, we're not doing this again. We're not propping you up any longer. You're on your own and you look a lot different when we're not there to cover for you. Can Republicans actually take advantage of that in the midterms and beyond? That's that's what we're going to see here in the near future. All right. On to our first great sponsor here, and that is Bambi. Look, HR is always challenging. And right now with inflation happening and needing to keep the book straight, uh, that's always a, a challenge. But so is just dealing with the people that you've hired to do your work. HR is not just about avoiding risk. As a business leader, you should do right by the people you employ, and that's why you need Bambi. Bambi is an HR platform built for businesses like yours. So you can automate the most important HR practices and get your own dedicated HR manager. First, Bambi's HR Autopilot automates your core policies, workplace training, and employee feedback. Then your dedicated HR manager will help you navigate the more complex parts of HR and guide you to compliance available by phone, email, or real-time chat. An in-house HR manager can cost up to $80,000 a year, but with Bambi, your dedicated HR manager starts at just $99 a month. No hidden fees and you can cancel anytime. Yeah, as Jim just said, this is a no-brainer. You can get excellent HR management at a fraction of the cost of hiring it full-time in-house. Uh, just $99 a month, and they give you excellent service. Bambi has received thousands of five-star reviews on Trustpilot, and their customers are four times less likely to have a claim filed against them. So if you run your own business, uh, focus on your business and let Bambi run your HR. Go to Bambi.com slash martini right now for your free HR audit. That's spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash martini. Bambi.com slash martini. Former Trump White House official Brooke Rollins explains how she and other conservatives are preparing to help the next Republican president advance their agenda and successfully fight the bureaucracy. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Rollins also explains how President Trump was able to accomplish so much despite the government working against him and how getting the right congressional staffers is vital. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, one more bit of good news, Andy, and that is the fantastic deals you can find at 4 slash martini, including their signature offer right now, a free solar panel with the purchase of the Patriot Power Generator 2000X, and of course, free shipping on all orders over $97. You want to be prepared. You don't want to get caught unprepared 
when your power goes out. It's going to happen eventually. It's just a question of whether you're in the dark for a few minutes, a few hours, or maybe even a few days or more. The Patriot Power Generator 2000X, worth its weight in gold. It's now got double the capacity, and it'll keep your big appliances running, including your fridge, which is full of food that just keeps getting more and more expensive. It's got 12 outlets, including 4AC, plus two USB-C outlets that can charge your phone 20 times faster than normal. So visit 4Patriots.com slash martini to get your Patriot Power Generator 2000X with the free solar panel included. Plus get free shipping on orders over $97. Save more and get peace of mind now by going to the number 4Patriots.com slash martini. That's 4Patriots.com slash martini. All right, Jeff, on to our second crazy martini here. And this is a story that the left has been pushing around for days, if not more than a week now, uh, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court, the left has tried to throw out a ton of really weird accusations about what will happen in certain situations, like you can't get treatment for an ectopic pregnancy, uh, which is obviously untrue in all 50 states and anywhere in the United States. Uh, then they there were people saying, uh, you know, I can't get treatment for the uh, abortion I needed when my baby died inside my womb. Well, that is a miscarriage uh, or a stillbirth in some cases, I guess. Uh, and that is also not an abortion. And so uh, then they went after the pregnancy centers. And now uh, they're talking about this 10-year-old girl in Ohio who was impregnated after being raped. And because she was beyond six weeks pregnant, allegedly, she couldn't get an abortion in Ohio and had to seek one in Indiana. Now, this story was first floated out there uh, by an abortion doctor named Caitlin Bernard. But what's odd is, is that nobody can verify any of the details here. You know, if a 10-year-old child is raped, there should probably be a criminal complaint or uh, labs that were done to try and figure out DNA and so forth. Apparently, none of that's happened. The attorney general for the state of Ohio is Dave Yost, and he appeared on Fox News last night with Jesse Waters and gave a pretty clear explanation about what hasn't happened as far as he can tell in his state. Apologies for the audio quality. I believe this was how it aired on Fox, but uh, you can certainly make out what he's saying. Not a whisper. And we work closely with the we have a decentralized law enforcement system in Ohio. Um, but we have regular contact with prosecutors and local police and sheriffs, not a whisper anywhere. Something maybe even more telling, Jesse, is my office runs the state crime lab. Any case like this, you're going to have a rape kit. You're going to have biological evidence, and you would be looking for DNA uh, analysis, which we do most of the DNA analysis in Ohio. There is no case request for analysis that looks anything like this. So, Jim, it uh, would allegedly be a juvenile, so it might be harder to dig into some of those records. But what the attorney general there uh, has to say is quite compelling. And nobody else who's dug into this seems to be able to find any details about this as well. And Dr. Bernard has stopped doing interviews on the subject now that some of these questions are being asked. So there's a lot of questions floating around social media and beyond about whether they just made this up, whether this started as a hypothetical, what happens if a 10-year-old gets pregnant is beyond six weeks. What do you make of what we know so far? If this did not happen, then this really probably ought to be a good martini. Um, this, you know, it, it, it uh, shocks and appalls and horrifies someone that thought that, the thought that that could happen. And it's interesting, for a couple of days, major people going all the way up to the president of the United States spoke about it as if it was confirmed truth. As people noted, the only person who has spoken on the record about this is an outspoken advocate for abortion, 
uh, an abortionist who, you know, very clearly has a vested interest in keeping abortion legal. And that is the scenario that I think even a whole bunch of people who think of themselves as dedicated pro-lifers might have moral qualms about that, might have deep-rooted troubling about that. I've heard quite a few people argue that a 10-year-old getting pregnant the you know a, a girl's body is not meant to give birth at that age and thus uh you know covered by some sort of health of the mother life of the mother exemption you know it's under from, my, from where i said it's very understandable pro-lifers would find that to be the toughest case and i think it's a little disingenuous for pro-choice advocates to point to that when you know different studies will give you different numbers but all of them indicate these are an exceptionally small number of the causes of abortions to be performed uh, you know, anywhere from 1% to 7%. These are not the cause of the vast majority of abortions in this country. So that's the good part of this. The bad part of this is that, you know, a bit like the telephone game, this became commonly accepted fact very, very quickly without anybody doing any fact checking. And I saw a couple of fact checks that basically, you know, that basically say, well, no one's confirmed any of the specifics, but a lot of people have reported on it. So thus it must be true. No, no, that's not how it works. And, you know, Ohio state law enforcement coming out and saying, look, we can find nothing to confirm this. And if God forbid this actually did happen, that the person who did this absolutely should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But apparently there's no word of any indication. Even if you don't uh, want to name the victim, even if you don't want to go into any specifics, you would not extend the same protections to the person accused of raping a 10 year old. People want to know who that is. You just want that person and you want that person arrested and charged as quickly as possible. Because if they already done this to one 10 year old, God forbid they could do it to others. So you look at all this and add it all up and it becomes uh, a little hard to believe. It seems a little too perfect to be the sort of thing, you know, that a pro-choicer would want to put in front of a, a pro-lifer to make them feel uncomfortable or conflicted. Um, but I think it's a bad indication that a whole, after all this talk about foreign disinformation and all the talk about the dangers of disinformation from social media, that an unverified story like this gets accepted as God's honest truth, you know, so quickly in our politics. Yeah, that's what makes me wonder if it was a runaway hypothetical or they they were that sinister to, to pretend it was an actual case, which is very odd. It's also weird, Jim, that they always focus on uh, an example or a hypothetical example, perhaps, that makes up about 1% of abortions. Mm-hmm. It's always the rape or the the child or the incest. Uh, and you can certainly have debates about those things because they are thornier issues, but they never just want to talk about the 98 to 99% of abortions that uh, are done for non-emergency reasons. It's, um, it's curious why they don't want to focus on those. <laughs> I think the social media posts that I saw, which we should emphasize, this is not representative of the other reasons, but it was a woman who said that uh, her husband had a vasectomy and she was having an affair and she was afraid that she could get pregnant from her affair and women don't have to be perfect to uh enjoy their rights or something was her, her slogan and many many people who were pro-choice said please stop helping you're really not a sympathetic victim here you're really not somebody who people say oh you're in a really tough spot there no it didn't really work that way so again not representative of every woman who wants to have an abortion but just an indicator that we can we we can cherry pick ugly examples from the other side too if we want to yeah absolutely right and like janet yellen saying well you might end up poor <laughs> some of you people yes. can't have that so uh Amazing. Just amazing on so many different levels. But uh, let's talk about uh, another one of our great sponsors, uh, and that would be NetChoice, bringing you the podcast in part today. Our country is being rocked 
by soaring inflation, lackluster leadership, as we've talked about a lot already, and chaos on the world stage. Americans need their legislators to focus on the issues that actually matter and ease the economic pain we are all feeling right now. Instead, senators like Amy Klobuchar are pushing a big government takeover of America's tech industry through progressive regulations that would worsen inflation and make important digital services like Amazon Prime more expensive and harder to use. Conservatives must block progressive pet projects that will raise prices and undermine our world's standing. These lawmakers need to keep American innovation the best in the world. NetChoice wants you to join it in telling Congress to stop rising prices and reject progressive tech regulations like Senate Resolution 2992. Learn more about this fight and send a letter to your representatives at netchoice.org slash 2992. This message was brought to you by NetChoice. If we've learned anything from the 2020 election, it's that while the process of counting electoral votes is straightforward, the rules outlined in the Electoral Count Act of 1887 are vague and antiquated. There shouldn't have been any question about whether the vice president could or should have changed the election results. Imagine the next election full of questions about vote irregularities, debates, and recounts of key state votes, except this time it's Vice President Harris being urged to interpret her role in the process as one where she has the right to determine which electoral votes count. Why? Because the Electoral Count Act is too ambiguous. This is why the Presidential Election Project aims to clearly define the role of the vice president and ensure that the role is beyond question. The project urges you to sign up for more information about why reform of the Electoral Count Act is so important. Go to presidentialelectionproject.com to take the first step in learning more. That's presidentialelectionproject.com. All right, Jim, on to our crazy martini now. And if you thought the last few presidential election cycles were kind of out of control, well, there are some who want them to get even crazier. Fortunately, it looks like this isn't going to happen, at least in part. Uh, but it was Juliana Glover last week, last Friday, over at Politico, writing that if Tucker Carlson decides he wants to run for president, uh, what the left really needs is for John Stewart to run for president as well. Now, those who have long political memories know that these two had a dust up on Crossfire nearly 20 years ago now, probably, where uh, uh, Stewart uh, basically blasted Carlson for, uh, you know, making entertainment out of the news and uh, then decided that The Daily Show wasn't really part of the, the serious solution here. Uh, but nonetheless, there are people who think that uh, Tucker Carlson versus Jon Stewart is where our culture is heading and could be the presidential matchup for 2024. And Juliana Glover seems to think that perhaps it should be. Now, for his part, Jon Stewart has already said, I am not running for president. He tweeted after Politico published this story, simply, quote, um... No, thank you. So, uh, Jim, apparently people haven't had enough of the entertainment side of politics these last few cycles. they got to keep going further and further down this path. But fortunately, it looks like we might not get too much further this cycle. But we'll see. Greg, uh, John Stewart has made me laugh in the past. I think, I think he's actually a very talented comedian. I think he's much more talented than his successors. But that said, if you're right of center, chances are at some point you've noticed what we the phenomenon we often would say clown nose on, clown nose off uh, defense for Jon Stewart, that he would, allegedly his show was a comedy, but you know clearly Jon Stewart had very strong views. And at some point he would speak very seriously about things. Oh, by the way, give him credit. He really did um, pound the table when it came to getting aid for 
uh, first responders, firemen, stuff like that, and say, arguing that those folks had gotten ignored uh, by the government. And I, I, you know, you don't have to agree with everything John Stewart says to think he's a guy who generally wants to make the world a better place, at least as he sees fit. That having been said, at some point, someone would point, someone would point out that he was, you know, uh, not giving the other side their due or not fairly characterizing the other side. And then he'd say, oh, what do you expect? It's a comedy show. Clown knows on. I'm just a comedian. What are you so upset about? And then, of course, Rolling Stone would say something like, you know, John Stewart is the most important journalist in America. By the way, I think comparisons like that were not good for John Stewart. And I think it was not good for journalism, by the way. But anyway, so here we are in 2022. Uh, we've had the host of The Apprentice become president. Uh, Minnesota had the experience of Jesse Ventura being the governor. Uh, there was talk for a while that Oprah should run. Oz is running for the Senate and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just saying, like, I would really like people who are allegedly serious, you know, voices in our politics to recognize that the job of the president is not to entertain you on television. If you think Tucker Carlson is the most entertaining and enthralling guy, you've ever, that's great. Great. You know, at eight to nine on Fox News Channel, he is there to tell you his perspective of how the world is working, what's going right, what's going wrong, how terrific Orban is, you know, fine, great. God bless you, Tucker Carlson, go do what you want to do. And the same thing for Jon Stewart. This doesn't mean they belong behind the Resolute desk because the job of the president is not just to entertain you. I seriously think some people say, well, you know, I've seen Jon Stewart give a speech and I've seen the president give a speech so they can do the same thing. I, one of the reasons I think John Stewart is saying no thank you is that John Stewart does not want to write letters to the, to the families of slain American servicemen because he sent, gave the order that sent them into harm's way. The presidency is serious business. And also, by the way, the other observation I'm kind of thinking about this is the comedians are there to make people happy. They're there to make people laugh. And God bless them. The world needs that. Or at least these comedians used to do that. Now they kind of go for clapter, you know, ha! <laughs> Trump is an orange, big orange idiot. <laughs> you know, that seems to be the Colbert show on a regular basis. <laughs> the point of the, the president's job is got to make hard decisions all day long. And you should not run for president if you are not prepared to disappoint people almost all the time. Don't let anybody tell you that the, the solutions are easy. I think what Kevin Williamson said, everything looks easy when you don't know the first thing about it. Every policy has trade-offs. Every policy is going to frustrate or disappoint someone. When you are if you come out of your presidency with everybody liking you, it probably means you didn't do very much, right? If you want to get this stuff done, at some point you're going to have to irk somebody. And that I think I, I'm kind of baffled as to why people who are celebrities, who are famous from some other aspect of, life, of their life, like is Dr. Oz really going to be happy in the U.S. Senate? If he if he wins, great. I hope him. I hope he's happy. I hope he finds a great sense of satisfaction for it. But, you know, I, I kind of would prefer not somebody who was known for, you know, telling Oprah to eat more beets to lose weight or whatever the hell he was doing. You know, like Pat Toomey was a guy who looked at the federal budget and just said, oh, my God, there's so much waste in there. There's so much stuff in there that doesn't belong in there at all. I went through all the numbers. I'm an absolute nerd. Here's what we need to get rid of. And that's what you belong with. That's what you need in the Senate. And in the presidency, you need somebody who's comfortable making tough decisions, not someone who's there to put on a show. I don't think good for Jon Stewart for recognizing he would not want that job. And any other celebrity out there is looking at the presidency and saying, God, wouldn't inauguration be great? Wouldn't I look good at the inaugural ball? And you got to make really hard decisions all day long. And, you know, I think the whole bunch of men who've ended up in the presidency and then realized the job was a lot harder than they expected. I think there was somebody who once said that there are two types of people who end up the presidency. Somebody who wants people, guys who want to be someone or guys who want to do something. Please, 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 America, elect the ones who want to do something, not be somebody.
Man, if Carlson's I mean, Alec Baldwin's an actor too. Yeah. yeah, Alec Baldwin, I think, is probably not in the best possible position to run for anything <laughs> right now, unless it's from the law. Uh, Maybe he could reinvent himself as a Second Amendment activist. Oh, gosh. Wow. Wow. That, I could hear the groans from here. Yes. Dear yes, listeners. Indeed. I think we'll probably exit now that we have the opportunity. Jim, have a great day. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Remember, you can get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Tuesday. And please join us again on Wednesday for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Much of the media doesn't cover some of the most important stories of the day. I'm Byron York from The Byron York Show. In my latest episodes, I will discuss how the January 6th hearings have become a completely scripted television production to fit a Democratic narrative and how no one is still asking why so many important details are still being hidden from the public. Don't forget, download and subscribe to the daily No Chit Chat podcast. I don't talk about every single issue, just the ones you need to know the most. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Cartels are exploiting Indian reservations to get into America, and our federal government can't be bothered to stop it. Hey, y'all, it's Sarah Carter from The Sarah Carter Show. I just got back from two trips to our southern border, and I want to take you inside a huge hotspot where thousands of migrants are coming into America every day. I was with a member of the National Border Patrol Council when the Border Patrol nabbed multiple illegal migrants who are breaking U.S. law, and I have the exclusive audio. For all this and more, subscribe to The Sarah Carter Show on your favorite podcast app.